Welcome to the AM Coffee Podcast, where we talk to fascinating people whose stories you won't hear on the evening news. Now, here's your host, Mike Summers. All right, thanks, Joe, and welcome to AM Coffee, where today we have a special Veterans Day episode. We have author Steve Snyder. Hi, good morning, Steve. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks a lot. <laughs> now, Steve is, a, is an author of a, of a book called Shot Down. This book has actually won 20 book awards, and it may be even more uh, since that was written. But uh, if, if you're a World War II buff, which I would like to categorize myself like that, but I can't say that I know enough to really be considered a buff. Um, but my dad was a World War II veteran, and, and, uh, and you know, and, and I would I just am interested in that kind of stuff. There's every time I watch something on TV, I learn something new. So, you know, I'm building it up a little bit, but if you're a world war II buff, this is going to be for you. And the book that he sells, the hardcover book actually has 200 time period photos from that era. Uh, and, and it's, it's fascinating stuff. And, uh, this is actually about your dad, is it not? Correct. Yeah. My dad uh, was a B-17 pilot during world war II. Yeah, yeah. Well, tell us how the uh, book got book started. Into, what, what got... Oh, gosh. Uh, good question. Uh, growing up, I knew the basics of my dad's World War II history. You know, I knew he was a B-17 pilot. He was stationed in England with the 8th Air Force. Uh, his plane was named the Susan Ruth after my oldest sister, who was one year old at the time that he went overseas. And he flew bombing missions over uh, Europe. And on February 8th of 1944, his plane was shot down. And he was missing in action for seven months, but he evaded capture and got back to England. But it wasn't until I retired in 2009 that I really had the time to delve into my dad's war history and in more detail. At that time, I had no intention at all of of writing a book. Uh, My parents had kept a lot of material from the war years, and I just wanted to go through all that and organize it and uh, learn, learn more details. And there are a couple items that were really significant. One was a diary that my dad wrote while he was missing in action about his plane being shot down. That's just riveting, which is in the book. And the other were all these letters that my dad had written to my mother while he was stationed in England before being shot down that she she had kept. And I sat down one day for several hours and just reading these letters. And I was was just in shock reading these letters because my dad was really candid in what he wrote in these letters. He talks about what bombing missions were like, uh, what life was like in the air base, what life was like in London and England at the time, with escapades of him and his crew. And I just became fascinated with the story of my dad and his crew, and it became my passion. And I started reading book after book about the air war over Europe. I went on the internet and spent countless hours doing research, downloading declassified military documents. Uh, I went on a quest and found uh, relatives of all his crew members and asked them for any information uh, that they could give to me. I started going to, or I joined a number of World War II organizations, started going to reunions, listening to veterans tell their stories. And finally, three years into my research, and I just came to the conclusion that the story of my dad and his crew was so unique and so compelling that it needed to be told and people needed to know about it. So I decided to write a book. That's awesome. That's all, awesome. you know, pilots, I knew some pilots, uh, when I was in the air force, we had, uh, um, uh, we had uh, a thing called Volat rodeo, which was a C one thirty type show where it was a competition, uh, where, where we had all the allies, the Italians, the Australians and everybody, everybody who had C one thirties in their fleet would come to Pope air force base where I was stationed at. And they would, uh, they would kind of do their touch and goes and different things. Everything was scored. It was really kind of a, a neat thing, but you ended up, you go to the NCO club that night or, or while they were there and you got to meet all these guys, you know, the officers were hanging out at the NCO club because that's where the action was better. But, uh, but they, <laughs> they would, they had some of the fantastic stories. I mean, these guys were fantastic storytellers and I'm sure your dad was probably in that. When you said that, it's like, it's like, yeah, I get that. Those guys were great. We enjoyed hanging around with them. Oh, that sounds like fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was good. It was good. So your dad started, was tell, he told you all these stories when as you were growing up then, or, or did you not really listen well, as you were younger? Or? Like most World War II veterans, he didn't talk uh, about the war much. Yeah. It wasn't until 1989 where uh, a memorial was erected uh, in Belgium in the little village of Mackenwaz, Belgium, which is right at the French-Belgium border. 
and my dad and three other crew members that were still living at the time uh, went over for the dedication. They went over with, with their wives for the dedication of the memorial. And there my dad was reunited with all these Belgian people that hit him from the Germans during the war, revisited these homes and farmhouses where he stayed. And that brought it all back. And that's when he started talking about it. And then five years later, I made my first trip to Belgium. I've been to Belgium six times. Um, and in 1994, uh, my wife and I accompanied my parents to the 50th anniversary of the liberation of Belgium and on my dad's plane being shot down. And that's when it became personal for me because I got to see these you know, places firsthand and actually met a couple of his, his helpers. You know, when you hear these stories when you're growing up, they really don't mean that much to you because you can't identify with them yeah. and you're really too young to, to appreciate them. But uh, when you get older and then you see things firsthand, you know, that has a much uh, bigger impact on you. Yeah, so the, the book is I all know, based my dad. on... I'm sorry. Oh, no. No, that's okay. I think we have a little delay here going on. We Steve's in California and I'm in Georgia. So, um, but I was going to say, my dad didn't talk a whole lot about it. The only thing I remember, I lost my dad at 16, but uh, I remember him telling me uh, that he was in North Africa and that whole uh, uh, theater. But uh, I just remember him spending Christmas, talking about spending Christmas there and how hot it was. And, you know, and I'm sure he told me more, but that was the highlight that only stuck in my, my little you know, 14 year old brain, but, but yeah, they, you're right though. They, he never really talked too much about it, but that's, um, but you ended up in Belgium in that, uh, 50th anniversary. I think that's, that was just kind of, uh, that had to be a little bit emotional. Was it? Not? Oh, it was an incredible experience. Every time I go over there, it's an incredible experience, but that time with my dad, I'll never forget this one, uh, uh, situation they have, uh, around these celebrations, they have lots of, uh, they set up these huge tents and they have all these activities like band concerts and dances and dinners and lunches. And uh, one evening uh, we arrived a little bit late and these tents are huge. There's can seat hundreds of people. And we got there a little late when my dad walked in, everyone, hundreds of people stood up and started uh, applauding him. And I guess get goosebumps just talking about it now. I mean, they treated him like he was the president of the United States. It was a very emotional experience. Wow. So you didn't realize that that he was that he had that what kind of lore there that he had he was known. Yeah, like well, I, I gained a whole new appreciation for my father after doing all this research and writing the book and 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 learning what uh, yeah. he did during the war. Wow. To, to be, to be liked by a country like that, that's, that's very special. That's really yeah, the, cool. the, Bel so, the Belgian people are amazing people to this day. They're still so grateful and so thankful for the allies in the, in the U S you know, coming to rescue them from four years of Nazi occupation and Nazi right. opp oppression. And they just can't thank the Americans enough. It's kind of like a mutual, mutual uh, admiration society. Because you know, when you go over there, they thank you for saving them. But then, you know, we thank them for, you know, saving my dad and, you know, hiding my dad and then taking care of him. Or, so the Germans didn't. You know. That's kind of remarkable. Even after 50 years, you know, here in America, it seems like we have such a, uh, a short uh, memory as far as the appreciation of, of veterans and, and people like your dad and my dad. And, and that, uh, you know, I, I think that it, I, I don't know if that kind of... Uh, uh, that kind of praise would be common here. No, well, you know, we've never under, you know, withstood or had to endure the hardships of those That's occupied true. countries uh, in Europe, you know, whether it be the Netherlands or uh, Belgium or France or other countries that were run over Poland, uh, what have you, you know, yeah. we, we, they, they've, they went through the suffering and the loss of all their freedoms and so they appreciate yeah. uh, here in the U S you know, we've always had it pretty good and, you know, people lose sight of that, yeah. you know, they, you know, freedom is not free and uh, what we could lose, you know, if uh, we hadn't have won that war. Correct. Yeah. We'd all be speaking German. That's it'd right. Be, it'd be completely different lifestyle for sure. Uh, so uh, you, you, the book is about your dad and one of his missions uh, that uh, that did not go well, correct? 
Right. Uh, the first half of the book kind of builds up to the day that their plane was shot down. And then the second half is all about what happened afterwards on the ground. And uh, it's just not about my dad, but it goes into detail about what happened to each member of his crew. Uh, B-17 had a 10-man crew. Five of them uh, survived and came home, but five of them did not. And it's also about all mm. the courageous Belgian people that risked their lives uh, trying, to, trying to help them. Um, and the book is all based on firsthand testimony by the people who were involved in the events that took place, either my, uh, my dad, members of the crew who su survived, uh, relatives of the crew, members of the Belgium underground, uh, those declassified military documents, mm -hmm. and uh, even uh, the German Luftwaffe pilot that shot down my dad's plane. <laughs> so it's all based on firsthand testimony. But uh, the drama really begins uh, when their plane was attacked by two German fighters, Focke-Wolf 190s, on February 8th of 1944. It was on a bombing mission to Frankfurt, Germany, where they... Uh, plane dropped its bombs successfully, but the Bombay doors got hit by flak and an aircraft fire, and they couldn't get them back up. And as a result, that caused a drag on the, on the plane. They lost airspeed and they lagged. They started falling behind the bomber formation that was heading back to their bases in England. So they became easy prey, you know, an easy target for these uh, German fighters who came in and, as my dad said, you know, shot the hell out of them. Um, two of the crew members died in the plane, and uh, their other eight were able to bail out. But both those German fighters were shot down at the same time. Uh, one was piloted by Siegfried Merrick. His plane crashed, and he died in the plane. And the other was piloted by Hans Berger. And Hans Berger was actually shot down by the gunners on my dad's crew. So they shot each other down at the same time. Oh, wow. He bailed out and uh, mm -hmm. made it through the war. and. Uh, We'll have to, uh, we'll talk about that too, how I found, found him and interviewed him for the book. But then after those, uh, those eight guys had bailed out, uh, they were all you know, at, at the beginning kind of scattered. In fact, my dad and the plane came down in Belgium, but the other guys who bailed out came down in Northern France. So it was right at the French Belgium border. Okay. And uh, my dad bailed out, he came down into some trees uh, right at the, the border there and as uh, parachute got hung up in these branches and he was dangling 20 feet off the ground and couldn't get down. But fortunately for him, a couple of young Belgian men, Henri Franken and Raymond Durvan came to his rescue before German patrols arrived. And they, uh, this occurred in the early afternoon. They, they told him to stay put and hide until night they thought it was too dangerous to try to move him during the daylight with these German patrols in the area. So that night they came back and got him, took him to uh, the Devan farmhouse. And he, but he only stayed there one night. They thought it was too dangerous for him to stay there any longer than that with those Germans uh, in the area. So the second night, a Belgium customs officer, Paul Tilken, uh, came on a tandem bicycle and uh, took my dad to another location. And after that, he was moved from place to place to place. How long he stayed in any given location depended on how brave the people were who lived there and how dangerous the Belgium underground thought it was for him to stay there. He might stay one night. Uh, he might spend six weeks. And as I mentioned, the Belgian people that Jeez. hit my dad or any downed airman, for that matter, were unbelievably brave people. I mean, they risked not only their lives, but the lives of family and friends uh, by aiding downed airmen. Because of the German secret police, the Gestapo found out about it. They'd be arrested, tortured, and either shot or sent to a concentration camp. And some of the Belgian people that helped my dad and other members of his crew did meet that fate. Um, oh, no. And all those are described in the book. So there's a, there's a lot of tragedy in the book, but there's a lot of, uh, you know, heroic uh, outcomes and uh, happy outcomes as well. Yeah. Boy, can you, can you imagine trying to give, you know... Well, I guess you have to be in that situation to know how brave you're going to be. You know, you never, you, you know, it's sort of like an orange. You're not really exactly sure if you first time you find an orange, you're not sure what's in it until you squeeze it. And and we're all the same way. You know, uh, it, it's uh, it's kind of interesting to, to to know how we'd react in the same situation. Um, yeah, because back then, yeah, the, the belt, you know, back then there was no uh, uh, escape and evasion training at all like they have today. 
Um, yeah. They gave you an evasion kit. Uh, you, you had a map, a little, you know, French uh, English dictionary or French Dutch dictionary, whatever. Um, some mm. some some money from the various countries, a compass, you know, a few little things like that. But yeah, it, it was really stressful for my dad because first his plane's attacked, it's on fire, he has to bail out. He comes down in a foreign country, has no idea where he is, uh, doesn't know what happened to his buddies on the crew, uh, can't communicate with the U.S. military, and he's being helped by complete strangers. They they can't really communicate because he can't speak French at that time, and they can't speak English. He refers to this little French-English <laughs> dictionary, and any one of these Belgian people could be a Nazi collaborator and turn him over to the Gestapo. So it, it was really stressful. And uh, there were several instances that are described in the book where he was almost discovered uh, by the Gestapo. Uh, mm -hmm. Typically, when the, the underground came across down airmen, they tried to get him back through to England through various escape routes, down through France, uh, over the Pyrenees Mountains, into, into Spain, and then out through British-controlled Gibraltar. But something always went wrong trying to get my dad out which was really frustrating for him. And so finally he got tired of hiding. Uh, word came that the allies had landed at Normandy on June 6th, D-Day. Mm -hmm. And he decided to get back in the fight and to join the French resistance, the fight against the Germans, which was a, unbelievably dangerous because uh, you know, he could have been killed fighting against the Germans or if they catch him, they'd be ex executed as a terrorist. You know, the safest thing just would have been to stay hunkered down and hiding and just waited out until the U.S. armies came up uh, through France after D-Day and liberated the area. Yeah. But unlike most airmen, uh, before my dad volunteered for the Air Force, he was in the Army for a year. So he was trained in, as an infantryman and knew how to fight on the ground. Oh. And so uh, he crossed over the border from Belgium into France and hooked up with a unit of the French resistance uh, called the Mac. They were called the Mackie. And they were uh, comprised of these the small independent ragtag guerrilla groups all across France. Uh, the unit he joined had about 20 men in it. There were some Belgians, some French and some uh, Algerians. Uh, and they were led by a French lieutenant who had uh, escaped from a German prisoner of war camp. And they uh, basically just to harass the Germans, they would disrupt communication, sabotage railroad lines, uh, attack convoys, assassinate German officers. And they got their instructions from the British through coded messages over the, the BBC, the British uh, Broadcasting Corporation. And my dad said the information they gave them were unbelievably, uh, was unbelievably accurate. If they said a German patrol or a convoy was coming down this road at this time on this day, sure enough. Um, they'd be there, and that was a result of the British cracking the Germans' Enigma code and oh, knew everything right. that the Germans were, were up to. And then they were also supplied by the British through airdrops as well. So he fought with the French resistance for uh, a couple months uh, until September 2nd. Um, word came that there were some U.S. troops, a little nearby village of Trelon, France, so he walked into the town square, went up to an army major, actually was an element of Patton's Third Army, and uh, identified himself. They interrogated him to make sure he was who he sure. said he was. Uh, and then he uh, hitched a ride on a convoy taking German prisoners to Paris and then hopped on a C-47 uh, to go back to England and back return to his base with the 306 bomb group at, at Thurlai, England. And there he sent a telegram to my mother saying he was fit as a fiddle and to bank the money, honey, because he had all that back pay coming. Sure, sure. And that ended seven months of missing in action. I was going to say, how long does it take for them to assume that you didn't make it? Well, they were shot down on February 8th. And then my mother got a telegram, uh, Western Union telegram from the War Department on February 23rd, saying that his plane had been shot down and he was missing in action. And. They don't know whether he's dead or alive. And my other sister, Nancy, was born while my dad was missing in action. So that was really tough on my mother. Goodness. She was back home in Pasadena, California with, you know, a one-year-old little girl, the infant girl, not knowing she'd, if she'd ever see her uh, or hear from her husband again. Wow. And a lot of, a lot of ladies in that situation back then. It's just, ugh. 
yeah. we, we, we have no idea how tough it, it would be to be like that. But uh, so how long, what uh, you said that was February 8th, 44 until, so that was, but yeah, so it was a year and a half about no, seven months. Oh, seven months. I was, oh, I went, I went forward another year. Yeah. yeah. Seven months. So that's a long time to be, be a moving target, you know, for a while. And then saying the heck with it, I'm just going to go in and, and, and kill me some Nazis. And, yeah. Know. I, yeah. I don't know how many people could have, would have made that decision, you know, that know either. back in the fight, because one of one other member of my dad's crew evaded capture as well. But unlike my dad that was moved from place to place to place, he stayed with one woman or two daughters the entire seven months. Oh, in okay. Okay. But I think one difference was uh, my dad was older. You know, he, he was considered like an old guy. He was 28 years old. So oh. they called him grandpa or you know, the yeah. old man. Yeah. Because most of these uh, members of a B-17 crew, there were four officers. Typically, they were in their early 20s. And then there were six gunners who were typically 18, 19 years old. And my dad's tail gunner with the other guy that was evaded capture, he he was only 19. In fact, mm. he celebrated his 20th birthday there in hiding. So he was a lot younger, a lot, you know, more, it, a lot, um, less mature, you know, you know he more impetuous. Yeah. So he, 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 he just stayed hunkered down and, and, and stayed put, but he did uh, evade capture. You know, being hidden that whole time in one house. Now you said five of them survived the uh, the ordeal, correct? And, right. and they all made it back home. They're all, I mean, yeah. Be be besides the uh, my dad and the tail gunner that evaded capture, the three other guys that that came back home, they were captured right away and they became prisoners of war. Oh. Uh, POWs. Although two of them were so seriously injured that they were repatriated back to the United States before the war ended. And then the third POW, he spent the, the rest of the, the war as a, as a POW. I bet. Did you ever talk to him? Yeah. In fact, uh, there's a, uh, on my website, there's a ton of information, uh, historical information on my website. There's lots of interviews with, with veterans or what there's one with, with my dad. And there's also one with, uh, uh, Roy Holbert, the, the guy that spent the entire remainder of the war as a POW on there as well. Okay. Oh, and, and just in case you're wondering, it's Steve Snyder author.com is where all this stuff is at, where he's, he's talking about. So, um, so you, you, you did end up talking to the, to the, uh, to the guy that was a prisoner of war and, and, uh, he, I bet he had some stories. In fact, uh, he he was on what's this what was referred to as the Black March uh, near the end of the war when the Russians were were coming, you know, in into Germany. Uh, most of the prisoner war camps were in uh, what was Poland, and so they started evacuating all these uh, prisoner of war camps because the Russians were coming, and so they were moving all the prisoners west, you know, back toward uh, into Germany. And they put him on, it was called the Black March. It was 86 days. It was like, walked like 500 miles in 86 days. And it was, it was one of the coldest winters in history in Europe. So they're yeah. walking in the snow and, you know, a, a lot of guys perished on, on, sure. on that trip because of malnutrition and uh, dysentery. Yeah. And he endured that. And that's described in the book. So something different and unique happened to each one of these guys. And the other three crew members, um, there were three crew members that evaded capture for two and a half months, but then uh, Nazi collaborator ratted them out to the to the to the Germans, and they were captured along with five other downed U.S. airmen and uh, executed. Oh my God! So there's it, it, it's an amazing story that involved you know not only my dad but all these members of his crew uh, as, yeah. as well. So your dad during that whole ordeal never never ran across his guys at all or, or any of it. Yeah, it, it was just, it's you know you got to feel so alone. I just can't even I can't even imagine. Like you said, oh. in a country you didn't know the language, you don't know anybody, and you don't know who to trust. I mean, it, it's that's got to be incredible. Yeah, he uh, he was totally separated from the other crew members. He didn't even know that those two guys had died in the plane. Yeah, because they were gunners in the back of the plane. And so he did, 
He had no idea what happened to anybody until he got back to England. And that's when he found out that uh, two members were killed in the plane and three became uh, prisoners of war. But the other three guys who were killed, they still didn't know what had happened to them. They just thought they were they were still missing in action. Yeah. So, yeah, it was it was pretty harrowing uh, experience, w- without a doubt. It had to be very unique in order to be shot down in a, in, in, a, in a bomber or a fighter or anything to actually survive that and make it back. I mean, that, he had to be a, a, a very select group of people. I, I can't even imagine that there's a lot of those people. Yeah, because typically if you were shot down, the vast majority of the guys that weren't killed um, became prisoners of war. Right. And then there was uh, of the of the men who were evaded, uh, most of them got out through these escape routes. Oh, okay. Then you have a small number who uh, evaded and just were hidden. But you know the, the the number of guys that actually evaded and then joined the French resistance to fight against the Germans on the ground. I mean, that's a very very. There's not many guys that that that, that did that. No, no, certainly not. Yeah, and there's a number of uh, encounters uh, that his uh, resistance group had with the Germans that are described in the book, and a couple of uh, my favorite uh, or cherished uh, mementos that my dad brought back is a Spanish uh, llama handgun that he carried with him uh, while he was fighting with the resistance, and a a belt that my dad took off a Waffen SS uh, tank sergeant. Uh, when oh, they wow. attacked a convoy this one time. So it's, it's exciting stuff. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, my dad actually brought back some, uh, I, we've actually got, my dad was Catholic and, and he, uh, he has this crucifix that he bought in where it's like, a it's like, it's about, it's about this big and it's, um, it, it opens up where you can like have a mass all on your, which, you know, I don't know and understand all that. I'm not a Catholic, but, but there's, there's, it's got holy water in it. Supposedly the whole thing was blessed by the Pope back then. Yeah. Um, he, he had a, a bag of coins that I still have from the Holy Roman empire that they used to sell on the street or whatever, when he was in Italy. And, and it's just some of the neat stuff that you can bring back. I mean, you got better stuff than I got, <laughs> but it's just, that's just, to me, you know, you look back in time and, and see the, that era of things. It's almost like you can almost put yourself back there and kind of uh, imagine what it was like. You know, it's really cool. Well, yeah. On my trips to uh, to Belgium and in France, you know, I've been in I've, I've been inside rooms where my dad and other members of his crew stayed. So, I mean, when you go in these houses or buildings or, you know, homes, farmhouses, and you're right there inside Mm. where this history took place 75 years ago, it's pretty incredible. I am so fortunate and so blessed to know so much about my dad and his crew and uh, have been able to go and visit these locations where all these events took place. And, you know, it's it's just incredible. I, I, it's an amazing thing when you, because mm-hmm. all this took place in southern Belgium, and it really hasn't. It's pretty much farmland there, and it really hasn't changed in in all these years, or really for hundreds of years. Sure. So unlike you know here where everything gets torn down, you know these old farmhouses and buildings, you know, are, they they're still standing. So yeah. you can go inside where all these events took place. See, that, that is so unique for you to be, have that firsthand seeing that and not just kind of reading it in a book or whatever. That's, that's fantastic. Yeah. You are, there's you a, are you're lucky. And as you say, you know, there's over 200 time periods, uh, time period photographs in the print book, mm-hmm. either the paperback or the hardback of all these places. And a lot of the pictures in the book were taken by Belgian people during the war in 1944. So you see pictures of my dad with his helpers. Uh, there's even wow. a picture of him jumping out of a, a Jeep fighting with the resistance. It's just uh, incredible that I was able to obtain all this information. 
Oh, I know. And then just that the, the greatest generation, I think people are, are not appreciative, you know, because we are getting, you know, every year we get older, um, they, they die off and, and, uh, and we kind of separate ourselves from that 75 years is a long time. I mean, it's, it's happening before I was born. And, and, uh, so, I mean, it, it's just one of those things that you got to wonder if 20 years from now, whether this will even be taught in schools much anymore. I hope it is, but you just don't know. There's a lot of stuff that's, that is, kind of gone gone by the wayside when it comes to history books and and everything anymore but hopefully world war ii is not one of them but um well yeah you're right you know it happens like you said 75 years ago and it's fading into people's memory and uh, we can't let that happen and that's why i do what i do um not this year because of covid but uh, typically i i travel all over the united states every year uh attending air shows uh signing copies of my book uh, talking to people uh, about World War II and the air war over Europe. I do lots of uh, speaking, okay. uh, making PowerPoint presentations, educating people about the importance of, of remembering. And uh, actually, the last trip, <laughs> I or the only trip I took this year was in February. Uh, I always go down uh, in February on Super Museum Sunday uh, to... Uh, the National Museum of the Mighty Eighth Air Force, which is in Pooler, Georgia, um, right outside Savannah. Yeah. Yeah. So you're down in Georgia. Anybody who has not been to the Mighty Eighth Museum in, in Pooler, Georgia, should go there. It's a fantastic museum. Well, my wife and I were talking about going there um, at the end of the year anyway. We're going down to, uh, there, there's a couple of islands out there. One has wild horses on it. She's always wanted to go see that. So we may, uh, we may stop down. We'll have to go through Savannah anyway. So I think that, that'd, be, that'd be great. Yeah, so well, Savannah, I love going to Savannah. It's a great historic uh, it is. city in, in, in town. And uh, like, a, yeah, go to the Mighty Eighth Museum. It's, uh, they have a B-17 in there. So you can see what a B-17 looks like. Okay. Um, and they have wonderful exhibits uh, about uh, the air war over Europe. They have one about prisoners of war. They have one about escape and evasion. It's really, really educational. Well, I really hope people don't forget. I, I think that I'm I'm grateful for people like you that are still out there kind of pushing this this history and making sure that people don't you know, keep it in the front of their minds that this is something that we don't ever want to repeat a uh, session of this. You know, you, even just how Hitler kind of gained control and kind of got people to think his way. And, and it's just, it's, it's kind of scary. I could see sometime in the future, you know, we, we, our minds aren't, uh, aren't as sharp as, uh, as we like to think they are. And, and people, you know, can be led very easily and, and history always repeats itself. So, you know, Hitler's, Hitler's tactics probably won't be any different. That's, it's right. You know, they say that for a reason that if he, you know, if if forget history, it's going to repeat. Yeah. And uh, you know, people, you know, especially the younger generations, you know, they've been brought up in this in the United States. You know, be, can do anything they want to do. Basically, they they have these freedoms and just take them for granted. Yeah. And uh, that's that's a dangerous thing to do. Just take your freedoms for for granted. Absolutely. Because all of a sudden, you know, they gradually fade away, and then all of a sudden, you're sitting there going, "Well, what happened?" You know, it's <laughs> no. through, apathy, through apathy and, you know, and, and, and not, not paying attention. I, I try to take the opportunity every chance I get. Cause you know, my wife and my son buy me uh veteran shirts and stuff and, and, and it's nice and I, and I wear it. And sometimes people stop and, and thank me for my service. And it's like, you know, I have to tell them, it's like, look, when I served, I was under the Reagan's between Reagan's first and second administration. The whole world was deathly afraid of the U S I was under, I was in a great time. So, I mean, I, I can't take credit. I took care of radar and, and, uh, and, and, um, radios and stuff for an air traffic control tower. It was, it was a job. It really wasn't bad when I was in, it was, it was very easy. So, I mean, the, even the guys serving today and, and, and the guys who served back then, I mean, when you have the, the unrest in the world, that makes things a whole lot different than when, when, when I, when I was in and I try to educate that it's like, look, you know, there, there've been times in this world and gratefully I, I was in during that time where things were peaceful. And right now we're relatively peaceful, but it doesn't mean it's always going to be that way. Exactly. You know, a lot of people lose sight too, that when world war two started or before world war two, 
you know, the world was a totally different place. The United States was a completely different country. Yeah. Now, today, most people live in cities. Back then, the U.S. was very rural. Most people lived out in the country, you know, on farms. A lot of these young guys, you know, they'd never been away out of their home county. Right. You know, never, never been away from their family, never been away from their mother, uh, you know, just out of high school. Yeah. And all of a sudden, bam, they're halfway around the world fighting a war. Fighting a war they probably didn't even understand. No, back then, uh, there was no, you know, no internet, no social media, no TV. No 24-hour news cycle, none of that. The only, the only news they ever got is in a magazine, which would be, you know, way outdated, or yeah. you know, reading the newspaper or, or the radio. So, you know, the, the people's knowledge of the world and what was going on was very limited compared to what people know today. You just, you know, if something happens halfway, you know, on the other side of the world, you know about it instantly. Sure. sure. So it was a it was a it was a totally different time. And I remember seeing a video of they were they were interviewing people, I think it was in New York City from the accent, uh, but they were asking him, it was in 19, I think it was in 1939 when they were going around man on the street type thing. What do you think about what's going on in Europe and in and, and Germany trying to take over? And most of the response that there was in the video, most of the respondents said, oh, what happens over there is is irrelevant to me and and you know, whatever. I, I just I just worry about my day to day. And we we do, you know, and I've I've been guilty of this myself. I've thought about that too when there's unrest in the Middle East. I think about, you know, that doesn't really affect us, but but you know, and we also you know, there's got to be a balance. We can't be the police of the world either. So it's like, you know, what do we get involved in? What what don't we get involved in? And I think that's been a struggle for the United States leaders for a long time. And it's probably why FDR took, you know, took the whole Pearl Harbor thing in order to get involved. Yeah, absolutely. That, yeah, prior to the war, like he said, uh, the majority of the U.S. wanted to stay out. They didn't want to yeah. repeat World War One. They didn't want to get involved. Um, but once Pearl Harbor hit, you know, the, the country really rallied. Yeah. And, you know, not only the millions of men that served uh, in the military, but, you know, everyone in the country united yeah. and uh, helped with the war effort, either, you know, the, all the women going to work in the factories or little kids, you know, saving tin and, or, you know, rubber or what materials you, you had for the, for the, for the war effort, all the victory gardens, growing your own vegetables and things like that. Even as little as donating the women, donating their nylons. I remember that being a thing. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, it's, I, you know, it would, it would be great. You know, you almost hate to, to hope something like that would happen, but it, it's one of those things. It would be so great to see in, in this, such a divided nation that we live in right now, politically, wouldn't it be great if we all had some kind of common, almost common enemy to where we could all kind of unite and, and, and move forward with. And, you know, I don't know. I think you're right though. We, we've had so, we've had it so good for so long that we don't, we just, we've kind of lost track of all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, they were the greatest generation. You know, they not Absolutely. only endured the war, they went through the Great Depression. You know, they knew hard times. Sure. People today really don't know hard times. No, no. Yeah. No, if, they, if they're not going out to eat two or three times a week, they think they're on hard times. So, yeah. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. yeah. yeah with your, your fancy cell phone or. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. It did. We could go on and on about that one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But uh, now you interviewed for this book, though, you interviewed uh, a lot of those neat people over in Germany and, and uh, in Belgium. You had a couple of very interesting ones specifically, did you not? Yes. Uh, uh, and the, the most significant was Hans Berger, the Luftwaffe pilot that shot down my dad's plane and uh, the gunners on my dad's plane shot him down. It, uh, when I was doing my research, it, it never even dawned on me to try to find the Luftwaffe pilot. Uh, all the military knew, all that my dad knew is that his plane was attacked by two Focke-Wolf German fighters. And that's all I thought I'd ever know. Because um, I, I just assumed that Hans was probably killed during the war or the whoever the pilot was that shot my dad's plane down was either killed during the war. Um, it's 70 years later, you know, he's, or if he survived, he's passed away by now. And I can't be, speak German. 
But one day when I was doing my research, my wife just casually said, well, why don't you try to find the German pilot that shot down your dad's plane? And I'm thinking to myself, oh, she's so naive. She doesn't know what she's <laughs> talking about. You know, she, she, she's, that's a ridiculous idea. We should listen but, to our wives more often. <laughs> but like a good husband, I did what she told me to do. And uh, I went on the uh, internet. I Googled trying to find a uh, Luftwaffe pilot. And a couple forums came up, which I joined. Then I posted inquiries because I knew the day he was shot down, the location where he was shot down, the time of day he was shot down. And in a week, two guys got back to me, one from England and one from Belgium. And on that day, there were 12 B-17 shot down, and the one shot down south of Chimay, Belgium, just north of the French border, was shot down by Hans Berger. And uh, the guy from Belgium uh, who contacted me, he was actually a, a, a Luftwaffe historian and had written a number of books about the Luftwaffe and knew Hans Berger. And fortunately for me, after the war, Hans became a translator. So he sp speaks perfect English. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the, the, this guy in Belgium asked Hans if it was okay if I contacted him. And he said it was okay. And then uh, I interviewed him for the book. He gave me some wonderful information that's in the book about what it was like to go up against the 8th Air Force. And uh I just had bombarded him with questions. At one time, Hans goes, Steve, you know, you're asking me all these personal <laughs> questions and we really don't know each other all that well, but I built up his trust uh, yeah. over time for the book. I just interviewed him uh, through email and over the telephone. Uh, but since the book was written, I've been to Munich, Germany, where he, he lives uh, twice, once in 2016 and 2019, last year, this last year. And uh, I did an interview with him, and uh, we we've become friends. Uh, he just so sell, he's the only person in the shot down story who's still living. Uh, he just turned ninety seven uh, earlier this month, and I called him and wished him a, a, a happy birthday. So that that was an incredible experience finding him and becoming friends yeah. with uh, a German pilot that shot especially my dad one down. that shot your dad down. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's just that you can't make that stuff up. No, no. Yeah. It, it's kind of a, the whole, this whole thing is kind of a fairy tale. Um, yes. And that how I could, and, you know, was so lucky to find all this stuff and meet these people and see these places uh, and kind of relive the, the history of my dad and his crew. Yeah. Yeah. Gee. Now, now, that interview you had with Hans is on your website. Is that correct? Um, Did you have that video? The one no? with Hans I haven't put on my, my website. Um, I did. Uh, I have made uh, a little 13-minute documentary short, uh, shot down short. And part of my interview with Hans is on that. Okay. I need to get that on my website. Uh but I, I, I need to put together all the footage I have from the interview with Hans. So it's a complete interview. Okay. Yeah. It, uh, I, I, I need to, I need to get uh, both those up there. The reason I haven't put the documentary up that has part of the interview is that I entered it into a number of film festivals around the country and, uh, they kind of like you to not spread this, you know, show the documentary to everybody until they've had a chance to show it in their oh, film. I see. I see. And so one, uh, so I'm just about ready to to put that on my website. But there are a lot of interviews uh, with uh, World War II veterans. Uh, my dad, uh, his flight engineer, other uh, members of the Eighth Air Force, and either other uh, World War II veterans uh, who fought on the ground and in, in, in the army. There's a uh, that my website's just not about my book, but there's lots of uh, archival footage uh, of the air war and, and bombing missions. And uh, there's even like all the uh, 12 o'clock high TV uh, series shows on my website and okay. a, lo a lot of research information. So somebody who's interested in World War II, especially the air war of Europe, can gain a lot of knowledge uh, about it by going on my website. 
I think you had told me before that the Germans had a, and this is maybe I got this from your website, but the Germans had a thing where they, after the Americans would go back to Europe when they were crossing the English Channel, they would kind of hide and and hit them as they were coming back. Is that was that you that was telling me that that story that they had a a, a, a strategy to get the guys after they were coming back after a bombing run. Um, I'm not sure what you mean. Uh, uh, maybe not. Maybe there, there was a, uh, over the English channel, there was, uh, and maybe I read it somewhere. Maybe I dreamed it, but it, it, I could have <laughs> swore it was you, but, uh, there was, um, they, the, the Luftwaffe would, would watch and, uh, and find these guys. I don't know whether, I don't know how it was, but they would kind of get them as they were coming back towards England towards, uh, going, you know, but maybe, like I said, maybe I read it somewhere else. I don't know. <laughs> but there, the, you know, the German had some Germans had some pretty good, you know, for all of Hitler's uh, craziness and flaws, uh, he, he was probably a pretty good uh, uh, war uh, genius when it came to uh, taking over places. He, he knew what he was doing. Well, at the beginning, and then once he took over the military. And, you know, didn't trust his generals and fired his generals. And, you know, that was one of his main downfalls. Yeah, he he was, made a lot of huge blunders. Well, and, he was uh, losing his mind there towards the end. The yeah. war could have ended differently if uh, he hadn't made the mistakes he did, fortunately. Yeah. Well, I think, he may, you know, maybe it was just power hungry. I think there was also some mental illness. You know, there was all kinds of stuff going on with him. So, yeah, he was he was. Uh, he was he he was crazy, all right. He was yeah. a yeah, but I mean, he was he he knew what he was doing when he was you know talking to his people and getting people on his side and and uh, you know and and you know I, just the whole thing that happened in Poland too. I just happened to read something. Uh, I actually was on a uh, there's a TV show called Where in the World I think it's called, and uh, they had they they take these satellite images and they find uh, anomalies in in the fields or whatever, and they and so they try to figure out what what is going on there and one was in poland where they would go through the the polish military right now goes through and finds undetonated bombs that had been uh put out there or dropped and they have to go and wire them up and and detonate them just and they were 75 years old and it's just to me that was just fascinating my wife was over there just like yeah 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 was like, but man it's just i i love watching that because it was just like it's a piece of history that i think that another another way we can keep this in the forefront of people's minds yeah they uh, well they find unexploded uh, ordnance all the time in europe today there i i wish i could think of that movie right now but it's a really interesting movie about after the war ended and I forget what country it is, if it was uh, uh, the Netherlands or Norway or someplace where there was, the Germans had planted all these mines on, the, on these beaches. And so the, uh, the country took these German prisoners of war and had them go out and find these mines. <laughs> and, you know, a lot... Yeah, all these uh, German POWs, I mean, they were getting blown up. Uh, it was extremely dangerous work because um, they, they had to, de- you know, demine the, the, all these beaches, which, you know, talk about hazardous duty. Yeah. I can't remember the, 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 uh, the name of that movie. Uh, uh, it just made me think of this. Another show that's on, I think it's, uh, I forget if it's Netflix. I think it's on Netflix. It's called Man in the High Castle, and it's a series uh, based on Germany and Japan winning the war. And so the United States is divided. Uh, The eastern half of the U.S. is controlled by the Nazis. The western states are controlled by Japan. And then they have this neutral area, like up uh, running north and south, kind of like along the Rockies. Oh, okay. But uh, it, it's based on, you know, what would the U.S., what would have happened if Germany and Japan had a won the war? Yeah. Um, it's a pretty interesting series called Man in the High Castle. Well, I, got, I just wrote that down. We're, we're going to have to try to check yeah. that out. That shows you what life would have been like in, you know, well, simulated sure. if uh, we hadn't have won the war. 
It, well, so if you haven't caught it by now, the name of the book is Shot Down. The author is uh, Steve Snyder. And uh, it, it's a, what a fantastic story. I mean, it's something that, that you'd have to, uh, you have to read it to believe it. And, and, you know, with all the pictures and everything pictures, you know, and, and my IQ level is really, really a game changer. Um, but you know, if you want, if you, uh, all your social media links are, are on your website, Steve Snyder, author.com. Now you can get an autographed copy through there. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Uh, most people get the book on Amazon, but, uh, yeah. it's available where most books, uh, uh, are, are or sold, but uh, for an autographed copy, uh, my uh, website is Steve Snyder, S N Y D E R uh, dot com, Steve Snyder author dot com. And the, the full name of the uh, title of the book is Shot Down The True Story of Pilot Howard Snyder and the Crew of the B 17 Susan Ruth. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like, like Mike, the book is kind of like two in one. One's the story of my dad and his crew that. Although it's all based on uh, firsthand testimony, it reads like a novel. Yeah. But what I added was just a lot of historical information and anecdotes about and surrounding the war to put it into context and give it the background. So it's kind of like a, almost a novel and a history book wrapped into one. Like I said, if you're a World War II aficionado, a buff, whatever you want to call it, man, this this book is for you. There's a, there's a lot of good stuff in here, um, and, and I think all of us ought to ought to at least be interested in what happened 75 years ago because it really did change the the, the trajectory of of the world uh, that that we know of. And uh, yeah, it's, it's it's a it's a great book and it's a great history book. Something you want to get your hands on and and go through. Like I said, the, the pictures. Uh, make mean a lot to me because you can actually immerse yourself what what it may have been like and I'm sure it's not even scratch the surface of what it's actually like so um, but yeah so don't don't forget to go if you want an autographed copy Steve Snyder author.com and uh, if you want to email him it's Steve at Steve Snyder author.com and that's S-N-Y-D-E-R so Steve I appreciate you being on for our special uh, Veterans Day edition of uh, AM Coffee it was a pleasure, sir. Well, it was my pleasure. Um, it's good to be on. Uh, nice talking with you. And uh, it's our duty to remember. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And don't forget to connect with us on social media. Our links are on the website, amcoffee.us. And we've made it pretty easy for Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It's just their main website slash amcoffeepodcast. So uh, until then, I will see you. We'll actually upload another one on Friday. So hang in there. And uh, this is a, a special edition. So have a good day. Thank you very much. See you next week. Thank you. Thank you for listening to AM Coffee. Available everywhere you get your podcasts. For more information and archive shows, the website is amcoffee.us. If you'd like to email us, it's amcoffeepodcast at gmail.com. See you next week.